Right, good evening everyone and a very warm welcome to the German Historical Institute to this uh, event, uh, Arno Pauker, scholar and friend uh, in honor of Arno Pauker, the uh, former, one of the former directors, founding directors of the Leo Beck Institute uh, here in London. And it's really a great honor for me to be part of uh, uh, this e event and that we can sort of have it here. It was conceived with, uh, together with Pauline Fauker and, and uh, Daniel Wildmann, uh, the press director of the Leo Beck Institute. And uh, to have it here is for us an honor because he was so important also for the Institute and its early years. We are, last year we uh, celebrated our 40th anniversary and Arno Pauker has been a, a constant friend, supporter uh, of the Institute uh, right from its start. And I have the, had the honor of meeting him. And he, uh, in my first years, I came here to London in 2006. And he was uh, uh, still a regular um, visitor to events at this Institute. And it's also, yeah very important for, for me, for us here, to uh, be here with you this evening because over the years we have developed such a, a long-standing cooperation and friendship with the Leo Beck Institute. We do a lot of things together and so I, it's on my part also thank you Pauline to, for doing this with us and I'm glad we can have, uh, yeah, this panel here and uh, I would like to thank all the panelists who have come here and will talk about their memories uh, of Arno and um, Daniel is going to chair this. So I hand over straight away to Daniel who will introduce the rest of the evening. He is the maître uh, for the rest of the event. So welcome from my side again and over to Daniel Wiesmann. Thank you very much, Andreas, and I'm also very, very happy to welcome you all to the event of tonight, Arno Pauker, scholar and friend. As Andreas has already pointed out, tonight's event is organized jointly by the German Research Institute and the um, Leo Beck Institute, London. My name is, probably most of you know me already, Daniel Wildmann. I'm the director of the Leo Beck Institute. And I'm really very happy to welcome you all here at this really splendid venue. <laughs> Arno would have liked here very much. I'm also very happy to see very many familiar faces, not only from the UK, but also from abroad, from the continent, Europe, as they might call it now, from Germany, but also from overseas, from the States, and from Israel. My thanks go out on one side to Andreas, the director of the Joy Soli Institute, to host this event, and very much to Pauline for her support, and very much also for her inspiration. And Pauline, who else can be, will be the first speaker of tonight, and she will open this event. As you probably know, Pauline is also a true scholar. 
she's an art historian and she has published quite intensely and quite immensely in her field. I would like to, just to mention one of her major work, a monograph about the German Jewish designer Elisabeth Friedländer. But tonight, tonight she's going to speak on, about Arno. So Pauline, please, over to me. Thank you. Well, I've got to thank uh, Dr. Gestrich and the German Historical Institute as well for acting as host tonight. Can you hear me? Yes. Good. Uh, and Dr. Daniel Wildmann of the Leo Beck Institute for organizing the program. And I thank you all for coming, many of you or some of you from afar. I'm going to tell a few anecdotes. Some of you will have heard some of them before, and I occupy no more than 10 minutes before the main speaker of the evening, Professor Peter Pulsar. 70 years ago, I met Arno in Florence. I was staying with my Spanish great-aunt and her two artist sons, who were then living in a villa on the old road to Fiesole in San Domenico. Today, it's the European University. Arno, who'd seen service in the British Army in Italy, was staying with Mario Bea, a well-off philanthropist and a distant connection, in Piazza d'Azeglio, down in the town. He was waiting for an American visa to join his brother Kurt in the USA. We were both enrolled in the first post-war summer course held in Florence University, Italian language in the morning, culture in the afternoon. I was in the English language group, he in the German. He needed to obtain some sort of proof of his having been in Italy in order to leave Italy. Because he was stateless, he was a kind of non-person who was hardly registered as coming in at all. One culture afternoon, he'd followed me from chapel to chapel in the church of Santa Croce. And as he later liked to tell friends, he approached the group I was animatedly talking to outside. He told us that the lecture we'd heard that morning, given by a cross and weary Italian professor longing to be at the seaside with wife and family, had been lifted word for word from H.A.L. Fisher's History of Europe, the chapter on the Renaissance in Europe, which Arno had been reading the week before. <laughs> we were all very impressed. And so began a conversation which was to last for 67 years of marriage. As I was to learn, Arno, at 26, had no educational qualifications whatsoever. He'd been thrown out of the Kaiser Friedrich Real Gymnasium at 13, had been taught to plow and sow, reap and mow at the Ben Sherman Agricultural High School in Palestine, and in the British Army, he'd been taught how to fire a rifle, how to tap on a typewriter, and how to use barrack room language in moments of stress. <laughs> After we married, I was able to bring him to England from a disastrous time we had in America, I being British-born, child of British-born parents, as the immigration laws demanded at that period. Then began a very weary time, Arno aiming at university entrance requirements, rather more stringent at that time than today. He was working as an export clerk in a motorcycle factory in Birmingham, my native city. He knew nothing of motorbikes or of brummies, but his years with the British Army and his easy manner meant that despite his heavy German accent, he had no problem with the people he worked with who became his friends. He started with A, or advanced levels, later O, or ordinary levels. These he found much more difficult, though he very much enjoyed the now-vanished 
O-level English language paper. It's no longer presented. Enthusing even the secretaries working in his office to study grammar. He said he would have failed the 11 plus had he had to take that too. A-level German was okay. He was widely read in the literature. But the A-level history syllabus started an enthusiasm for the Civil War period and to the buying of books written by eyewitnesses of the time, Burnett, Clarendon, Lucy Hutchinson. We have a very good collection. He and I were now spending much of our housekeeping money on books. This was another passion, but one we shared. A-level English had led to a liking for Pope and Milton and the purchase of very nice editions of Alexander Pope and a still nicer Baskerville Paradise Lost. He liked to quote from both, and he quoted often from his favorite German writer Fontana, from Morgenstern, another favorite, from Shakespeare, from Goethe's Faust. He liked to quote Mephistopheles, and he was a keen reader of Surtees' hunting novels, often quoting Mr. Jorrocks. I never thought I'd meet a German Jew who reads Surtees, one book dealer exclaimed. I was to find that Arno's enthusiasm and total obsession with whatever topic he was pursuing was catching. At Birmingham University, finally, the study of German led to his special interest in the German Volksbuch, dear to Roy Pascal, his professor, and so to the subject of his dissertation, the Yiddish versions of the German Volksbuch, and the discovery of markedly varied adaptations and even a concealed mocking of the Christian faith which had been hitherto overlooked. I was fascinated by the topic, and Arno asked me to write notes on the illustrated versions. In London, on arrival at the Leo Beck Institute, I'd been pressed into service by Robert Welsh, then the editor of the yearbook, as the only native English speaker to hand for proofreading the yearbook essays, and later sub-editing, and even on one occasion appearing as an author. With Arno as editor, I became a sort of maid of all work. He seemed to think I was there for odd, sometimes very odd jobs connected with organizing conferences or the yearbook, but he was not quite so interested in whatever I was doing, even when we once gave papers at the same conference. But it was together that we wrote Speaking English with an Accent. By then, I too was absorbed by German Jewish history, knowing enough to follow Arno's work on the rehabilitation of the Zentralverein and later his work on Jewish resistance to Nazism. And so the conversation went on while traveling, exploring cities, book buying, meeting friends, family, a conversation now at an end. It's still going on in my head. He would have enjoyed this evening. Thank you. Thank you very much, Pauline, for your very moving lecture about the very long conversation which is still going on. And now I'd like to introduce our second speaker and welcome him very warmly tonight, Professor Peter Pulzer. Peter is our DLDI with London, our former chairman, and also a long-standing friend and colleague of Arlo. Until his retirement, Peter was the Gladstone Professor of Government and Fellow of All Souls College in Oxford. He has published seminal books, monographs to be precise, not only on German, German Jewish, but also on British history, which is quite phenomenal, I think. He was awarded, like Arnold, the Cross of the Order of Merit of the Federal Republic of Germany, 
das Bundesverdienstkreuz, but also the grand silver insignia of honor of the Republic of Austria, das große silberne um, Ehrenkreuz, it's really grand, if you have ever seen this, it's very much Habsburg. And, um, but tonight, Peter is going to speak about Arno Pauker, the scholar who reached out. So please, Peter, over to you. Uh, good evening, friends, colleagues. Uh, I too should like to thank the German Historical Institute for hosting this occasion, uh, both as a tribute to Arno personally, uh, but also uh, as a recognition of the close connection that he had with the German Historical Institute over many decades. Anyone who was ever present at a meeting or a talk uh, involving Arno will remember his opening words, I will be brief. <laughs> <laughs> Which would be rightly taken as a signal to fasten seatbelts for the ensuing half hour. Um, I will try to be fairly brief, fully knowing that to be that to be brief risks not doing justice to his many admirable qualities and to his multifaceted character. It's a great good fortune if a colleague is also a friend. If the meetings around the committee table with their agendas, their projects, their budgets, uh, their plans for the future, can, when the last item has been concluded, meld into an informal conversation about art, music, literature, travel, politics, and gossip. And this is what very often happened where Arno was concerned, that there was no there was no barrier, there was no dis distinction, no frontier separating the formal from the informal. And that, I think, is one of, his act one of his qualities that most of us will remember and most of us treasure. If you had asked the teenage Arno, do you see yourself one day sitting behind a desk in London, running one of the world's most important institutes for the study and publication of German Jewish history, he would have regarded the question as absurd and therefore deserving of an absurd answer. And yet the trajectory of his career was not entirely surprising. Because even in those teenage years, he showed two characteristics, two qualities, without which he could not have succeeded in his later work. 
And these two qualities were firstly an instinct for politics um, and secondly uh, a consciousness that he was descended from the people of the book. Now these two preoccupations, these two attributes were sometimes in conflict with each other. As, uh, as Pauline has just mentioned, he was expelled from his school in Berlin uh, for refusing to join in the singing of the Horst Wessel song. As a result, uh, he found himself in a school in, in, in mandatory Palestine where he was also dissatisfied uh, because it was a school that was devoted to inculcating pioneering skills and he didn't actually see himself as a hands-on uh, person. Um, I don't know whether he ever managed to, uh, to learn how to drive a car or ride a bicycle. I suspect not. I suspect not. <laughs> Um, but what he missed at this school was the kind of rigorous academic education which he had been able to enjoy up to his expulsion in Berlin. Not quite enough, uh, not quite enough Homer or Virgil, not quite enough uh, Schiller and Goethe, not quite enough Shakespeare and Milton, not quite enough Mommsen and uh, Ranke. So he turned his, his writing and political skills to editing, to founding and then editing a subversive school newspaper called Volksstimme, uh, which ran to all of ten issues and he claimed that he was the only possessor, or one of two possessors, of a complete run of this journal. Right. Having failed to gain the academic education that he longed for, that he felt he needed in Palestine, he tried to get admitted to a school in Britain which was in theory possible under the mandate, but he lacked the paper qualifications for this. So he did the next best thing. He joined the British Army. Now this too was an experience which was both academic and political. It was academic in the sense that he learnt the English language Though, if I may once more refer to what uh, Pauline has said, this was more likely to be the English of the barrack room than of the classroom. Though, when one late, in later years, when one heard him speak English, there was no trace of the influence of the barrack room. Uh, politically, it was also an instructive time for him. Uh, when his unit moved to Egypt, he made the acquaintance of the then important and influential North African Jewish communist Henri Curiel. 
he also managed to make some kind of contact with the numerous Italian prisoners of war who were interned in Egypt, uh, greeting them with uh, left-wing and communist slogans uh, to which he claimed they responded enthusiastically. This might seem an implausible story, uh, but it does actually coincide with an experience that I had as a schoolboy. That was during the war, and during the war uh, we were required to spend the summer holidays uh, bringing in the harvest. And we, and the, the school that I was at, camped out in Gloucestershire and were employed by one of the farmers there. We worked side by side with Italian prisoners of war. And we noticed that these men were not in any way escorted or guarded, that they came and went and did their day's work and pocketed their pay. Now at this time, uh, one of the great war stories that fascinated the entire population were the escapes by British servicemen from German POW camps. And we were so slightly surprised that these Italians showed no signs of wanting to emulate uh, their British comrades in arms. So we asked them, look, uh, you're not guarded. Nobody, there's nobody here to prevent you from running away. Why don't you escape? And they looked at us in amazement as though we had asked the world's most stupid question and said, you crazy? Why should, for what should we escape? To get killed for Mussolini? And so we understood that perhaps support for the fascist regime among the Italian population was, at this stage, pretty shallow. Arno's career with the British Army, which led him to participate in the liberation of almost the whole of Italy from south to north, was also uh, a, a political as well as an educational experience. Um, it was political because he again made contact uh, with Italian partisans uh, whose political views corresponded with his. Uh, he has recorded that one of the greatest experiences of his life was to be in the main square of Bologna on the 25th of June 1945. Uh, and there he was with his unit when truckloads of Italian partisans uh, came into town. And once more he greeted them with cries of Lotta Continua, uh, Bandiera Rossa, and they, he claims, responded in kind. Uh, but more importantly, and here again is something that, uh, that Pauline mentioned, more importantly, he attended art history classes in Florence and met Pauline and married Pauline. And after an attempt to make a go of life in the United States, they, 
they both came back to England, which was Pauline's homeland, and he had to make a number of decisions. One of them was how to, how to rid himself of his status of statelessness. Now here he had a number of choices. Having been born in Germany, having lived in Palestine and the United States, and now having an English wife, uh, he could select from citizenships uh, at his disposal. But taking his cue from the pirates of Penzance, he decided that in spite of all temptations to belong to other nations, he would become an Englishman. And I'll return to his attachment to his adopted country uh, later on. Um, life in England also meant, sooner or later, that he could satisfy his longing to step to, to join the footsteps of his ancestors as people of the book. Uh, to apply to university, to study at the University of Birmingham. At that stage, uh, uh, an institute of higher education with probably the best department in Germany in the in German in the UK, and then on to the University of Nottingham, as a result of which he became a well-qualified literary scholar. Now we are moving towards uh, the final stage of his transformation from a Berlin schoolboy uh, to an, a British citizen uh, with academic responsibilities, but not quite. His qualifications were in language and literature. Uh, he was interested in history, but he had no qualifications in it. Nevertheless, he was a man not to be deterred by a lack of formal qualifications. When the Leo Beck Institute of London advertised for the position of director in order to take up duties uh, by the side of the then director, Dr. Robert Welch, Arno applied and managed to talk himself into the job. <laughs> Whether it was in German or in English, I don't know. Um, when I joined the board of the Leo Beck Institute in London, I was surprised to discover that this London-based uh, institution conducted its business in German. And when I asked Dr. Welch why this was so, he replied that he chose German uh, because that was the language of the Zionist Congresses. It wasn't, as you might have suspected, because his English was defective. He had, after all, been editor of the Leo Beck yearbook, uh, which was published in English. He also, I think, mistook the character of Theodor Herzl. As we all know, he was a great snob. 
uh, with an admiration for the lifestyle of the British upper classes, and Zionist congresses, whether conducted in German or, or anything else, were black tie occasions. But there we are. Um, when Dr. Welch retired and Arno took over, uh, the language of the proceedings at our meetings switched to English. English with an accent, of course. <laughs> uh, and this applied as much to him as to, um, to Welch's successor as chairman, Professor Werner Mosse. The difference between the two was that Mosse, who had also served in the British Army during the war, was acutely embarrassed by his, his accent, whereas I think, it, I'm, think I'm justified in saying that Arno never was, and rather <laughs> regarded it as a bit of a joke. Uh, but there we are. Now, this is where I think we begin to appreciate exactly how great Arno's achievement to scholarship, to history, and to German-Jewish studies was. Until that point, he had to some extent drifted, picking oranges in Palestine, writing invoices for a motorcycle company, um, teaching school, uh, being a student possibly with a, with a risk of being a perpetual student. But now there was a salaried position with responsibilities and with an agenda. Now what was the agenda? When the Leo Beck Institute was founded in Martin Buber's apartment in Jerusalem in 1955, the remit was to collect such memorials or documentation as might have survived the previous years to assemble them to publish their contents in the Leo Beck Institute yearbook. And this was to be a fairly short-term project um, because, as one of the early founders said, we, that is to say, those assembled in Jerusalem, are the last generation, the last age group that has any recollections, any memories, any knowledge of uh, the German-Jewish cultural heritage. <coughs> Younger members of the Leo Beck Institute, like Arno, would have nothing to do with this view. For him, the study of German-Jewish history was only just beginning. The early issues of the Leerbeck yearbook contained material as envisaged by the founders. Interesting, instructive articles of recollection, uh, memorials, um, and one could see that sooner or later the supply of these would run out. I had a look before coming here at some of the early yearbooks and I noticed 
that many of the articles in them were without um, the traditional German um, uh, battle weapon uh, of academic discourse, namely the footnote. <laughs> well, Arno soon put an end to that. Now the articles are simply bristling with footnotes. They have become more German than they were uh, in the early years. But what is more important is that each yearbook produces new, new insights, new findings, new arguments, new material. Um, when I was more closely involved with the Institute, I was, I was often asked, well, what do you people do? Is there anything new to be said about German Jewish history? Is there anything more to be said? And my answer was always twofold. Firstly, you'd be surprised of how many hidden materials there are. There is, for instance, the archive uh, that was stolen by the Nazis and then stolen by the Soviets from the Nazis that festered in the secret archive in Moscow and which then became available to the public after the fall of communism. So there is new material, uh, there are letters, there are diaries, uh, there are organisational details, but also what changes is the perspective of the historian. I would say you might as well ask whether there's anything new to be said about Bismarck or Napoleon or Cromwell or the Emperor Charles V. And the answer is there always is, because the passage of time uh, le permits new perspectives and new viewpoints uh, on familiar, but on material that might appear to be familiar. Um, and this was the first of Arno's great achievements, leaving aside his anglicisation of the proceedings of the Institute. The second was to internationalise it. And this explains the title which I chose for my, uh, for my, uh, for my talk, namely uh, that Arno was a scholar who reached out. Sooner or later, the question would arise why the Leerbeck Institute should have its three centres in the cities, the principal cities of the German Jewish surviving diaspora, Jerusalem, New York and London. Was there not uh, again a German community a Jewish community in Germany and was the history of the Jews of Germany not part of German history? Um, was it not a fact that after some decades of silence there was, I won't say a revival, um, 
but an innovation in the form of a scholarly interest in the history of the Jews of Germany among German historians. Uh, were there not, was there not the foundation of more than one institute for German Jewish history in various cities, initially in Berlin and Hamburg, and then in a large number of cities? Um, were we, was the Leobeck Institute to ignore these developments? Or was it to join with them uh, and make the, the enterprise a more comprehensive and a more international and, if you like, a more fraternal one? And the breakthrough came when there was a conference in Germany, uh, I think it was in Hamburg, um, on problems of research in German Jewish history. And Werner Mosse, who was Welch's successor as chairman of the London Institute and my predecessor, um, was invited to think about joining with German colleagues. Um, and after some hesitation, uh, which I think was understandable, he decided uh, that this was a good idea and he stresses in his own memoirs how helpful Arno was in smoothing the way, uh, in establishing contacts with the new generation of German historians who were interested in the history of the Jews of Germany. And this led, after some time, to the creation of the, the working community uh, of the Leobeck Institute in Germany. Um, a German Leobeck Institute in all but name. Um, an increasing level of cooperation with German scholars, uh, which was characterized by joint conferences, and above all, the tremendous symposium volumes published by the Leobeck Institute, uh, which were primarily edited by Werner Mosse, but I think would not have seen the light of day if it hadn't been for Arno's ability to raise the funds for the conferences and the publications, um, if he had not been involved in editing them, um, and in many cases uh, Pauline added, uh, acted as, needless to say, unpaid uh, copy editor and proofreader. Um, and that it was the situation of the Leobeck Institute when after 22 years Arno stepped down from being its director and its, uh, its, the editor of, his, of its yearbook. Um, and if you wanted me to sum up in one sentence uh, what his contribution uh, to the study of German Jewish history was, I would say that it was 
to internationalize it, to re-establish contact with the German historical profession, um, with the result that, as I indicated at the beginning, he had this great gift for making his colleagues his friends. Um, and the personal relationships between him and many of the new pioneers of German-Jewish history in Germany uh, was one of, in, many, in some cases, intense friendship and mutual understanding. Uh, all of this faced him with, I won't say a dilemma, but with the need to decide where, after all his migrations and all his changes of abode and home, where he belonged. Was he British? Was he English? Was he German? And he said in the memoir that he wrote for Peter Alter, whom we, uh, whom we welcome here this evening, I do not see myself as an exile. When I return to Germany, I feel that I am visiting a foreign country where it so happens that I speak the language rather well. <laughs> and without an accent. <laughs> I think the last four words need to be footnoted. It is true that he didn't speak German with a foreign accent. But I'm also convinced that any German Professor Higgins would immediately have located him in Berlin Charlottenburg. <laughs> and how did he feel about the German historical profession, about his colleagues and friends in the German historical profession? I shall never forgive, he wrote. And he wrote this in German, so this is my translation. I shall never forgive those who inflicted the great misfortune on the Jewish people, on Europe, and in the end, Germany itself. But I have no need for reconciliation with a new generation that bears no guilt, but perceives the historical responsibility for the past. We are often united by identical concerns. What is remarkable is that those German historians who have chosen to research German-Jewish history are quite different from the representatives of the formerly German nationalist professional guild. They reflect the progressive political outlook that once characterized the Jewish community of Germany. And this sentiment was echoed in the preface to the impressive volume of his collected uh, essays um, by one of Arno's closest colleagues and friends, uh, Professor Reinhard Rurup, whom we are happy to welcome this evening. Um, he wrote in, I will first of all quote it in German and then attempt my translation. Die Mo der Mode, selbst die Aufklärung in Frage zu stellen, 
und somit jenen Fortschritt, der allein uns Juden ein menschenwürdiges Dasein verhieß, erklärt er eine klare Absage. Das ist eine altmodisch-fortschrittliche Position, die noch immer unverzichtbar ist. He dismisses unambiguously the fashion of questioning the Enlightenment itself and thereby that progress which alone proclaimed a dignified existence for us Jews. That is an old-fashioned progressive stand that remains indispensable. And I think it remains all the more indispensable as we enter an age of post-truth, of alternative facts and all the other innovations in public thought that we are daily faced with. And I can think of no verdict that would constitute a more valid and a more appropriate uh, epitaph for honor. about Arno, the man of the book, who reached out to Germany. And now I would like to ask my panelists to join me here um, on the panel, please. you can see, you're looking now at another generation. And, um, and this generation has also a German-speaking background. We all speak English with an accent. Um, that we are here, this has very much to do with Arnold. That you see here, a new generation of scholars active in his field of research. And firstly, I would like to um, introduce my panelists shortly. On my right-hand side, on your left, you see Professor Raphael Gross. Raphael is the former director of the LBI London and also the former director of the Jewish Museum in Frankfurt. Currently, he is still, for two weeks, the director of the Simon Dubnov Institute um, for Jewish History and Culture at the University of Leipzig. And soon, in two weeks, he will take on his new position as the president of the Deutsches Historisches Museum, the German Historical Museum in Berlin. On my left-hand side, you see Dr. Simone Erpel. Simone is a historian and an eminent museum curator based in Berlin. Let me just mention some of her big exhibitions. Um, probably the most um, famous one, Hitler und die Deutschen, Hitler and the Jews, which she has done in 2010 for the German Historical Museum. Hitler and the Germans. Yes. <laughs> But Hitler and the Jews. Oh, so. <laughs> <laughs> Good this idea a, for an exhibition. <laughs> this was a Freudian slip. <laughs> so, of course, Hitler and the Deutschen, Hitler and the Germans. <laughs> And she has just finished another exhibition, Die Weiße Rose, a very new one, which is the new exhibition 
for the uh, memorial site for the Weisse Rose in Munich. I think currently you're working on an art exhibition for the, for the memorial site, Ravensbrück. And on my very, very left side, but this is not political, you see Professor Peter Alter. Peter, Peter is Professor Emeritus for Contemporary History at the University of Duisburg, Essen, and he's also one of the former deputy directors of the German Historical Institute here in London in the 1990s. And he published widely on German and British history. I would like to mention one of his books, which is really important for us here tonight. Um, Out of the Third Reich, Refugee Historians in Post-War Britain, published in 1998 here in London. How do we proceed tonight? First, I would like to conduct some short um, discussions with all my panelists, maybe five minutes for each of them, and then I will open the floor for your comments and your questions. Let me start with Raphael with a questions with a question which go in, in your field, which is German Jewish intellectual history. Mm. We way often use the term Freundschaft, friendship here. How would you see friendship as a part of um, Arno's life and political convictions? Right. Um, first of all, thank you, Daniel, for um, inviting me. And uh, I would also uh, express my wish that we will have a discussion because there are so many people here in the room who uh, know so much more about Arno than I do. Uh, I only met him really after uh, I applied for the job <laughs> that he still had in 2000. Um, however, I think um, when, when, when we were discussing this and it was clear that first Pauline is going to speak and then uh, Peter Pulzer, I thought, hmm, so uh, what is left for us here on the panel? Um, and then I saw the title um, that I think came from Peter Pulzer, um, uh, scholar and friend. And I was thinking um, not so much about the scholar Arno. Uh, however, I, I'm glad that I think Simone might mention more about his kind of central interest in Widerstand and resistance, because that was not so much mentioned so, so far. Um, but the other point that uh, he was such a gifted friend, I mean, Peter made this point twice, and I was thinking about mm, what does it actually mean? Um, not in terms of we all liked him or many of us <coughs> liked him, but also politically, in terms of was there also something that it had to do also with his agenda? Um, and another word that was not so much used so far, I think, is he was very kind of, um, he always said this, that he is a socialist and he remained a socialist all his life. So when we think about this, he's a German Jew from Wilmersdorf, Charlottenburg. He very early on was very convinced uh, in socialist ideas, even during his service. So I think his friendship also had something to do with you know, if you look at the key terms of, of the French Revolution, uh, liberty, equality, fraternity, 
Um, we don't like the word fraternity so much because it's a bit gender biased. It's just part uh, of uh, mankind. But we can translate it somehow with friendship. Uh, I think it has to do also with the idea that there's not just a legal framework that we need as a socialist, but there is also something more. There is solidarity, there is the internationale, there is this whole movement that he always wanted to be part of. And in a certain way, I also think it very much, uh, when, when we look at this more in a political way, that this uh, friendship was something more for him than just an, a political thing. It was also part of anti-fascism. It was part of, um, and I also think that he could reach out to Germany post-war. Um, maybe also had to do with this uh, possibility that he could really split between the anti-fascists and the Germans. Uh, in a way, he, he was able, and he had actually colleagues, as far as I remember, not just in the West, but also in the East part of Germany. So he really reached out there and he saw them as colleagues, as friends, as partners in a struggle against fascism. They not, they did not have to be socialists, but they had to be anti-fascists. I think there was some kind of agenda there. If this was clear, uh, you know, they might even have been liberal social democrats like Reinhard Rürup. Uh, he would have accepted them because they were clearly anti-fascists. So he, he found a way there. And then I think also it's interesting that he, as someone who always saw himself as an atheist and socialist, was the person who was part in creating this field that is quite ethnically oriented, German-Jewish mm -hmm. history. Mm -hmm. So in a way, he, he did something which was against all his own um, kind of uh, ideas that, that it's not so important to belong to a specific group. Um, and at the same time, he was the person who brought this history of this specific group uh, there. And maybe that also has something to do with his upbringing in Germany, that for German Jews, uh, for some German Jews, not for all, but for quite an interesting group, from Horkheimer to Benjamin, from many of them, to somehow see themselves as part of the working movement, of the labor movement, was very somehow tempting because they could trade their origins that was not part of Germany to a future that they saw, mm, we, we will fight for a, for a joint future where uh, religion and uh, ethnicity and all of those things and class do not play a role. So I think that's in my view now, um, maybe one element that I, I wanted to mention uh, that I also only thought about when I was asked to write an mm. obituary on Arnold last year, and I thought, mm, what are actually his key things? And so I suddenly looked at him from a bit more distance than when we were sitting next to each other on the same desk for, uh, by Robert Welch. Mm. <laughs> so I was not really seeing it then. But now I think, uh, in a way, the friendship is also a kind of political concept with him, and it's more than just friends. I mean, Raphael, you, you did two extremely brilliant books who changed a lot 
among thinkers and intellectuals in Germany, the one about Carl Schmitt, about the right to intellectual, or the last one about national social morality. Now you come from Switzerland and Germany to England, to London, you meet and you work together with Arnold, who believes in these dreams, in this concept of friendship, who lives a totally different life. Has it any kind of impact on your intellectual interest? What kind of spuren, what kind of traces did this work with him together left, were left behind, were left, or had, what kind of imprint they had on your intellectual or professional life? Um, that's a difficult question. Mm, I, um, I haven't thought about it. Um, I think, I, 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 I don't think I can answer this. Mm -hmm. Maybe I can say something about the more pragmatic things. Mm -hmm. That when I came into the Leo Beck Institute in 2001, um, I was a bit worried um, that I will really share a room with the former director who was a kind of overtowering figure in the field. And we really shared this small, rather small office. Um, uh, and I thought, hmm, will it work out well? And um, again, I mean, coming back to the friendship, I think he was like, mm -hmm. it was like from the first day on clear, he will be there for half a year, and then he will hand over to me. And he did this, it was very mm. uh, kind of brave of him that he then really retired. He, he became an honorary treasurer, but that was not such a mm -hmm. uh, executive, um, uh, position and I think he left me a lot of room for my own ideas because it was clear that we I was never a social historian mm -hmm. Arnold was also really a social historian that was key to him it was resistance and social history that he somehow advocated and I was I was more of an intellectual historian mm -hmm. so in a way we were quite different in, in our fields and in our interests um, but maybe I learned a lot from him as a kind of a manager of, of mm -hmm. um, how to do things uh, with organizations mm -hmm. because he, were, he, was, uh, he was very gifted. And I think his uh, gift for friendship also, Peter mentioned this before, uh, helped him to have such an international kind of mm -hmm. uh, network. Um, and I think this for historians is, is, is very important. Mm -hmm. Maybe taking your ideas about friendship and this openness and the, and the national network and that maybe his dedication to left-wing ideas opening the way back to Germany and maybe was also instrumental to bringing young German scholars. This leads me to you, Simone. I think um, he shaped your career in a very particular way. How did you, how did you meet him? And what, what was the impact of this meeting? So first, I would like to say I'm really honored to be part of this evening. And uh, thank you, Daniel, for inviting me. Um, and I must admit that this, this, this evening is also very personal for me. So how I met Arno. It was quite uh, very easy. I wrote him a letter. <laughs> so it was in the late 80s. And um, I was working about the woman of the Herbert Baum group and uh, for my master's thesis. And uh, this group was a resistance network in Berlin, um, uh, was um, 
with uh, there there belongs a lot of groups of um, Jewish men and uh, Jewish women who were friends mm -hmm. to to this uh, group to this network. Um, so and. Um, most of them came from the Jewish youth movement and were communist. Um, and I knew that Arno Pauka was, before his immigration, um, before he emigrated, um, uh, a member of a, a last, uh, of a left Zionist group in Berlin, the Werkleute. Mm -hmm. So I hoped that uh, he knew some of the people around Herbert Baum, because some of them were at the same age than Arno Pauka. So um, what happened? <laughs> um, Arno replied with a very, very nice letter. Um, and he didn't make himself available as an eyewitness, but uh, as a publisher of the Leo Beck yearbook. Um, I was very thrilled about that uh, because he, um, um, he offered me um, that I could meet him when he was in Germany the next time. Mm -hmm. And um, so we met us at the conference I think it was, in, or I guess it was in Mülheim an der Ruhr. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, one, one second, please. Um, um, uh, <clears throat> so, I, I was very touched because he, in my eyes, he was a um, distinguished color, and he wanted to meet me, a simple history student. So, and he offered me to uh, publish an essay about the woman in, uh, of the Herbert Baum group um, in the yearbook. So, the international leading journal of the history of German-speaking Jews in Europe. Um, that was a total surprise for me. <laughs> um, and uh, in fact, um, that became my real first academic uh, publication. So I must say I didn't know Arno very well. We just meet us, met us um, only a few times. Yet it's fair to say um, that the encounter, encounters um, set to the cost to, uh, for my future work as a scholar and uh, also for, uh, as a museum curator. That's because Arno motivated me to go on with my research um, and he simply do it, it uh, by giving me the chance to, be, to become part of the scholar debate about Jewish resistance in Nazi Germany. Um, his uh, uncondition unconditional support for those who were conducting research about Jewish resistance in Germany 
and that in respective of the mm -hmm. person doing it um, was very impressive for me. Uh, back in those days, the late 80s, I was more a feminist punk than an ordinary or a history student and you can imagine I looked like a feminist punk and on the top of <laughs> on top of that I uh, wasn't even Jewish uh, and I'm still not Jewish but all of that but all of that didn't seem to interest uh, Arno at all the only thing that was important for him uh, was the topic and that was um, the Jewish resistance in all of his facets and to um, promote those who were addressing new questions in uh, this field of research. So I can say uh, his um, uh, passionate dedication, dedication to the topic was, uh, in, uh, impressed me very deeply. So as you uh, probably all know, um, the resistance of German Jews uh, wasn't truly taken notice um, of until after 1990. The fact that German Jews were fighting for dignity and self-assertion, in short, that Jewish victims also put up resistance to the Nazis, seemed to be a completely new idea. And many Germans, um, were simply unwilling to uh, acknowledge this because with it came the quite and painful question uh, what can we say about resistance among gentle Germans. So Arno's main concern uh, was to counter the myth of the alleged mm -hmm. lack um, of resistance by Jews in Germany. It was so finally no surprise that Arno opened the first ever exhibition in Germany about uh, Jewish resistance in Berlin. Uh, it was on the 31st March 1993 and I remember Pauline was also a guest at this event. Um, with moving words and also moved by himself, very moved by himself, Arno honored um, the Jewish resistance uh, fighter, fighter. And I uh, quote, the brave young Jewish people who fighting a losing battle died in the struggle against fascism 50 years ago here in Berlin, end of quotation. Um, to, to sum it up, um, it was Arno's big achievement to open the field to uh, the field of German-Jewish history for as many scholars uh, as possible on other, either side of the canal and the Atlantic. And um, above all, he supported several generations of young scholars, I'm one example, um, and Arno's perspective 
um, that victims were active and acting subjects that came very central for my work as a scholar and um, a museum's curator at uh, the Memorial Site Ravensbrück, Memorial Site Ravensbrück, and um, Daniel, you mentioned the last exhibition, the, my recent work for the Weiße Rose, the resistance group Memorial Site in Munich. So I like to say thank you, Arno. <laughs> Peter, what really seems to come to the fore here and listening to Raphael, to Rafi and to Simone, both very close friends of mine, I mean, it's really moving. And also, it's a challenge, also from an intellectual point of view. But, but you have done a lot of research about the entire group of German-speaking historians, no, German-Jewish historians <laughs> in exile in, in, in the UK after 1945. This is kind of very unique, or how can you place Arno in this field of um, the German-Jewish exilees, the academics, the historians here in the UK? Well, in a way I'm in a sort of predicament because what has to be said about Arno has been said by Peter Pulser in his appraisal about his work and his life and what you said. Uh, I would say when I interviewed this group of for German-British mm -hmm. historians, um, he, was, he was the one who was most interested in the whole project because mm -hmm. he said this is a distinct group and we have to remember what they have done and what they are still doing because most of them at that time were still alive. Mm -hmm. Now, we all agree that uh, Arno Pauker was an eminent historian. He opened a new area of research and he was the first who pointed at Jewish resistance to anti-Nazism, to anti-Semitism, and to the uh, Third Reich. Um, and this is studies which are collected in this volume, uh, Deutsche Juden im Kampf um Recht und Freiheit, which was edited by his old friends, Reinhard Rürup and uh, Barbara Suchi. Um, um, he opened not only a new area of research, but also paved the way for new research. And I think this is very important, and this shows the quality he had as a historian. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, or adding to that, I would say he was very important, he was eminent as an editor, and Peter Pulser also pointed to this uh, aspect. He was an eminent organizer of conferences, uh, mainly in Oxford and Cambridge, and uh, everybody who has ever attended one of these conferences will not forget, will not, never ever forget the atmosphere of these conferences, which were, which were um, dominated more or less by his personality, his efficiency, and I would say his geniality. And closely connected with him as an organizer of conferences, he was an editor. And he was a very strict and liberal editor at the same time. And uh, this is a point where I would like to uh, let Arno speak for himself, because um, once uh, Arno wrote, and I quote from a private letter he, uh, which I could uh, read, he wrote to one of the um, 
contributors of, to one of his volumes who was a bit lazy and didn't deliver or didn't keep the deadline. So he wrote to him, uh, my friend John had mir hoch und heilig versprochen to write. I think he will, otherwise I will bully him further. And in most cases, Arno's stern Anglo-German approach in dealing with lazy contributors was highly successful. What I would like to stress, and this is a sort of summing up some of his qualities he had and which impressed everybody very much so, and you gave a vivid example for that. Uh, in the first place, I would mention Arno's liberal spirit, his uh, open-mindedness and his courage And I think you all know or have heard the anecdote which he liked to tell. When he was in Berlin as an 11-year-old boy, he went with his brother to a swimming pool in Berlin, Harlensee. And he was sporting, this was, this was 1932, he was sporting the symbol of a socialist anti-Nazi organization. I think the, the Iron Front or something like that. Yeah. And they had the three arrows, and he sported these three arrows on his swimming trunks, and the consequence was that he was beaten up by Nazi thugs. But he liked to tell the story, and it showed his courage. And uh, I personally had the uh, uh, experience of his courage, his liberalism, open-mindedness, uh, once when I was publishing, and that's when I come back to the, uh, uh, to the volume uh, you mentioned, Out of the Third Reich, mm -hmm. Uh, when this volume was uh, published, um, where's, the, where's the quote? Um, when this volume was published, I was asked by the Association of Jewish Refugees Information, which is a journal which is being published here in London, and they wanted to interview me about this uh, volume. And in the course of this interview, um, the interviewer discovered that I was not Jewish. So uh, he didn't publish the interview. So when Arno heard this uh, story, he got very angry. And uh, when you he heard that the editor said, well, I've had more than 100 interviews with, uh, uh, with people all over the world, but not ever with a, with a Gentile. So I don't want to publish this uh, interview. Now, when Arno heard this, um, he got very angry and uh, he reacted appropriately. And I quote from a letter he wrote to the editor, quote, what puzzles me very much is um, that it is, it would seem, the policy of the Association of Jewish Refugees that AJR inform information does not publish contributions by non-Jews. Correct me if I'm wrong. I find this really hard to believe and, would be, and I would be grateful if you would please enlighten me. Well, at the end, the uh, interview was published. <laughs> Now, what Arno had to a very large extent is a sense of irony and humor. And not only in conversation, but also in his writing. And uh, even when, well, you see the difference when you read uh, work, scholarly works in English. There's always some humor or irony. When you read works in German, there's almost nothing. Now, he had it, and he applied it to all his publications. And um, I would conclude my uh, few remarks 
uh, on a very personal note, when the volume which I mentioned, edited by uh, Reinhard Rurup and Barbara Suchi, was published in 2003, Arno graciously sent me a copy. And on an attached little piece of paper, he had scribbled, and I uh, quote again, this volume is thought to be a sort of memento for all my friends, relatives, and colleagues, though, now brackets, though I assure you I am not yet prepared to quit. <laughs> and brackets, very sadly, now Arno has left us. Thank you very much. Peter, before I open the floor, maybe one last question to, to Raphael. You know, we discussed a lot about um, Arno Parker within, let's say, a German-British kind of context. But if you see him, you know, in, in a kind of more broader context of German-Jewish historians in exile, if I may use the word exile, even if Arno in the 1950s, 1960s, was not so convinced anymore that he's in exile. He was just convinced of speaking English with an accent, but not being in exile. What would you say if he compare him or his position, his work, with his colleagues in the States? Right, I think, um, actually, I don't know how his um, relationships with uh, U.S. German Jewish historians exactly were. I remember that when I took over the yearbook, uh, that at that time was already edited jointly, uh, was edited by John Grenville. Mm -hmm. um, there was a, a big board. I think there is still this big board you in still it. Have to uh, board, yes. <laughs> and then you see there are the German uh, board members, the, the U.S. board members, uh, the Israelis, and. Um, the British, and um, I mean, I, th I remember if I think Peter Gay was on mm -hmm. it. I think Fritz Stern, Fritz Stern. Fritz Stern was in it, and so, uh, and others. Um, however, I think this was only introduced after Arno has finished being the editor, because Arno was a very strong editor. <laughs> and he did not want to have too much people interfering with what he was doing. So I think he was careful uh, in not having such a large board uh, because he felt he, and also maybe that also had to do with his political agenda. It wasn't mm -hmm. so easy. He was, um, I mean, the Leo Beck Institute in the three centers Jerusalem, New York, London was, of course, not united in one ideology. Um, he was rather critical about uh, a reading of German Jewish history as Israeli uh, historians mm -hmm. would have portrayed them. Specifically, I think, in the 80s and, and 70s. Maybe later on, he found his kind of common ground with people like Arno Bark with Avram Barkai or so. But I think there were a lot of tensions uh, that went very deep. Um, also, I think there was, um, I'm not, yeah, I, th I think there, there were mm -hmm. discussions with, with Israel. There was, with Israel, he had, of course, uh, uh, big discussions about uh, his atheist perspective on German Jewish history, which was very important to mm -hmm. 
I think that uh, this is not uh, an inside story. This is scholarship. I mean, Peter uh, pointed this out very nicely his footnotes. Uh, I think that was very important for him that this is scholarship. And in a way, by doing this, he took up a kind of 19th century uh, German-Jewish tradition of Wissenschaft mm. des Judentums, uh, looking at uh, Jewish culture and tradition in a kind of scientific, academic uh, way. And I think that was very important for him. Um, and then again, I think a lot of the American uh, uh, historians of German origins, like Fritz Stern, mm -hmm. who passed away, I think, last year too, they, I think, they somehow became more historians of German history mm -hmm. than Arnold yes. ever became. Mm -hmm. So I think that, that, that also Peter Gay, in a way, his book about Weimar or his books and Freud, they, they were never so centrally uh, focused on German-Jewish history. So in a way, he was really someone who wanted to build up a specific field. And that, that was his strength and maybe mm -hmm. also his genius as an organizer that kept mm -hmm. this agenda, while the others uh, made very important contribution, I mean, Fritz Stern, obviously about the German right or mm -hmm. uh, the conservative revolution or about Bismarck and Bleichröder, etc. But it was not so kind of uh, mm -hmm. focused in a specific um, line. I think that's an extremely interesting distinction, which makes a lot clear about Arno's achievement also on an international scale. And I would, would very like, I would now very much like to open our discussion to the floor and maybe I start with some of the names which were mentioned at least five times. Among our guests are Barbara Suchi and, and Reinhard Rüru. I, 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 I know you have some problems with your voice, <laughs> Reinhard, but Yes, but would you mind to? I think I should say at least that I did not edit Arnold's last book. <laughs> no, it was, it was not his last book, it was his collection I, of his studies. I wrote, wrote a biographical essay as a foreword uh, of this uh, <coughs> wonderful uh, volume of his own contributions. And uh, I, I think it is, it is a book which actually put in its third edition, which is for such kind of books rather rare. Uh, with regard to the panel, I was very impressed by the, by the fact that the emotion, the, the importance of emotions for Arno were uh, in <coughs> were, were uh, seemed to be important. He really, uh, not, uh, not just uh, in his relations to colleagues and, and friends was rather emotional, but also in the way he dealt with history. It was history uh, which he loved to do, mm -hmm. and that, that's, that's important. And he could make use of irony and humor, in a very, very nice and intelligent way, of course. And with regard uh, to his political uh, ideas, and his, uh, he, he, I think, uh, except in the uh, intellectual world and, and especially in 
in history, so he normally did not intervene. He had his opinions, and he was, as had been said, an anti-fascist. He regarded, regarded himself until the end of his life as a true anti-fascist, which uh, did not mean that he uh, expected his friends uh, that they would join him to sing the international song, <laughs> but that they respected why, why, and understood why he did it. Yeah. And that, I think, was an important uh, aspect of having friends. Barbara, you might maybe yeah. add something. Yes, I join in this. <coughs> um, that yes, I I shall briefly tell you how I got into the RBI. This was in the late seventies. Uh, this Hamburg conference, which had for the first time, I think, a Jewish section, and I went there. I just got my PhD at a rather late age and was very shy and just had uh, decided to deal with German Jewish history and was applying for a fellowship, DFG. Mm -hmm. And there, there were all the big names of the German Jewish historiography. I was so shy. I didn't dare to approach them. I knew their books, I had read their articles, and I was so shy. And I was standing there, I didn't know anyone personally, and there was a lady approaching me. And she asked me who I was and where did I come from, and this was Pauline Powell. <laughs> <laughs> and this was the beginning of a wonderful friendship, and I'm so grateful. And through Pauline, I met Arno, who then perhaps gave a positive view on my application, uh, which was in the end the base of uh, two contributions to the yearbook, and after that, Arno dragged me into the RBI as a bibliographer, which I did faithfully together with uh, Annette Pringel, who would have loved to be here today. She's based in Boston. And um, <clears throat> I must say that um, uh, the weeks I spent at that time in the Leo Beck Institute uh, during the summer <coughs> were my happiest in my professional life as a historian. It was like a spiritual oasis. And for the first time in my life, I was able to laugh about German Jewish history occasionally. And this was um, <coughs> this armament. <coughs> Before that, I would have never dared to. And Arno accepted me as a non-socialist and as a non-Jewish, a non-Jew, and um, yes, just gave me a wonderful opportunity to be part of it. Yeah. Thank you. All right. More comments or questions from your side to the panel or? Yes, please. Um, I wonder how many here remember the German Jewish Dilemma Conference in 1995. Um, I had met Arnold a couple of years beforehand. Uh, I had arranged for Dr. Dieter Albrecht, who at that time was the director of the Ostsee Academy in Travemünde. I picked him up at the airport, and on the very first morning of the conference, I took Dieter to the big uh, auditorium 
and introduce him to Arnold. What happened then warmed the cockles of my heart. These two had never met before. Deep at that time was in some way the pendant Edward Timms at the Centre for German Jewish mm -hmm. Studies. Those two talked for 20 minutes. They never met before, but immediately they were attracted to one another. And I, what amused me then afterwards, eminent Jewish scholars like Peter Poulsen and Werner Mosser, anxious to have a word with Arno, no, he ignored them. For something like 20 minutes. And those two also became great, great friends. And when Dietner was being forced out by the Pomeranian revisionists, they owned the Ostsee Academie. Arno, although he had once had his hands burnt, he did tell me this, he wrote a wonderful letter of support to the minister-president of Schleswig-Holstein, which all helped to get Dietner reinstated and we saved the Ostsee Academie. And it was thanks to that original meeting that Arno gave some wonderful lectures. The German Jews of 1919 to 1939, German Jewish uh, resistance with that guy, of course, quite about 10 minutes before he get the people on his side to try to understand this concept. I think it's two or three times, Pauline will verify this, that he went to those lectures. Mm -hmm. Wonderful cosmopolitan audience, because Dieter would get people from Russia, from Belarus, from Lithuania, an interesting thing about Dietmar Albrecht, he has refused the Federal Order of Merit, mm. but he has been honored by the Lithuanian government, mm. and it's either Latvia or Estonia, I'm not certain. So that is an example of mm. Arno reaching out. It's a very beautiful example of, of Arno and the way how he reached out. And I think, as my panelists pointed out this several times, and also Peter um, made a really clear statement about this. This might have very much to do with his generation. So my question is maybe to bring it to another point. Is his project kind of a project of a generation or do we have a future? Raphael. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm always getting the difficult questions tonight. Um, I mean, I think it's very clear that Arno would not have seen it as a generational mm -hmm. project. Mm -hmm. And I also remember that there were always big discussions if it was mm -hmm. or not, also inside the Institute. And mm -hmm. I think this was part of the project, discussing how much it is um, somehow a, a generational project or not. Um, I do think... Um, in a certain way, it is both. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because the way that he and his generation, the generation that Peter Alter is in a way the historian of, mm -hmm. uh, as the one who interviewed all of them, the way that they approach this uh, history is, is possibly really somehow um, one specific <laughs> approach to it. Um, that cannot be repeated, also mm -hmm. wouldn't make sense to repeat it. Even so, uh, Peter rightly started uh, saying, mm, you can ask new questions about Bismarck. Yes, it's true. Um, and you can ask new questions about German Jewish history. But I would say this generation had some specific questions mm -hmm. that they uh, somehow had an interest. And also, I remember Arno was very careful in not sending away all the former minutes 
partly they were in German, of the uh, discussions inside the Leo Beck Institute in London, but they were still in the office when I was, uh, mm -hmm. when I became director. And they were very intense. They had very intense discussions between them in a way that I would say were, I would say, more existential because it was about their um, reading of was it wrong how German jury thought that they will be Germans, their Bildung will, uh, and their socialism mm -hmm. will somehow bring them uh, into, into Germany or, or not. Because uh, Israeli uh, mm -hmm. Leobeck Institute uh, historians saw it very differently than Arnold. And they were fighting. And mm -hmm. I think it was a fight about their own kind of parents and uh, how they uh, reacted. And in a way, the emotional, um, uh, the emotional way that Arno worked on this theme of Jewish resistance is also part of it. Mm -hmm. Because in a way, he also always wanted to demonstrate it's not true what the Israelis say, mm -hmm. that uh, we were just uh, kind of not uh, uh, somehow united or we were not willing to fight for our, mm -hmm. our ideas. I think that, that also cannot be seen outside this generational discussions there. Mm -hmm. And I think this kind of what you mentioned, yes, you wanted to add something? Well, going back to Arno's uh, youth, um, mm -hmm. Dr. Apple, you mentioned that he was a member of a left-wing Zionist group. Did you say it's Werkleute? Werkleute. Werkleute, nicht Werkleute. Working. This is important. This would have been 35, 36 or something like that? No, it was earlier because he, uh, he joined the Werkleute in 1932 or 31. Okay. And he emigrated with them to Palestine. Yeah. It was a group of Werkleute who went to Palestine to find Kubitz or work, work in the kibbutz. Yeah. Yeah. I think this emotional identity or discussions with Reinhardt mentioned, Raphael also tried to discuss here, I think has some reflection also on the new generation. Maybe we ask different questions, but I think if we see us, you know, the new generation as a result of certain things which were moved and triggered by Arno, I guess we might have a future. And thanks also to Arno, but also to very many of you who are here. Peter, for example. Reinhard, Peter, you want to add something? Uh, yes, on the question of whether uh, the interest in German Jewish history is a generational one, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and by implication is therefore likely to die out, mm -hmm. diminish. I would say the politics of it uh, was generational the need, the, the urge on both sides mm -hmm. to establish contact, uh, a reconvergence of historical method mm -hmm. and historical interest that was specific to a generation. But mm -hmm. the, the subject by itself, the research agenda, is now, has, has taken off. Mm -hmm. It's now self-sustaining. It's not... Mm -hmm. It's no longer dependent on the political imperative mm -hmm. of creating contacts that have been interrupted. How do you see Simone? I mean, you belong to this new generation too. <laughs> do you agree with Peter? So, it's 
it's difficult to say. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know, Daniel. Mm -hmm. So it's an open so, question then? Well, uh, I think for Arno, it needed the personal experience of exile. The whole family was affected mm -hmm. by a political regime. They had to emigrate to America, to Palestine, to Britain, etc., etc. And this is not the usual thing, you know, that always his historian in his writing is always writing with the background of his experiences, his education, his social background, mm -hmm. even his nationality. Mm -hmm. But in Arno's case, I think it was, it was closer to his whole being. Yes. The, the experience of being driven out of his country mm -hmm. and violently, you know, and I think this affected or dominated his history writing, mm -hmm. writing of history. You can say every historian uh, is based, or every history writing is based on one's experience, but in Arnold's case I think it was much stronger and mm -hmm. deeper than perhaps usual. Mm -hmm. Yes? My observation would be with regard to the future of um, uh, German-Jewish history is that it is the present generation, the young generation, that is actually producing memories of their own that will be subject to the scrutiny of historians because it is fascinating what is coming into being. And just think of books like House by the Lake, um, mm -hmm. uh, films like The Flat, I mean, the very personal recollections of the grandparents and parents who mm -hmm. had the experience and how this affects the family and what this does to relationship to Germany, relationship to the new home, now very home country. I think this is going to be a continued mm -hmm. field of, of research. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is perhaps uh, especially true for literature, for historical research. I want to mention that in Germany there are really today very many institutions dealing with that subject. Yes. Um, <clears throat> this was not easy 30 years ago or 40 years ago, but finally it was quite successful. And even new um, institutes. Um, devoted to that topic are being created at present. And many students do their master in German Jewish history or even in Yiddistic or whatever. And it's kind of uh, overshadowed today by, um, by current issues having to do with, uh, with Islam and all mm -hmm. these things. But on the whole, I think the interest is still and there, students are studying it. Whether they can make a living with it, that's another question. <laughs> I think Raphael will agree. There's really very many institutes. Raphael. Um, yeah, I, I, my feeling is that uh, maybe um, in the 80s, I mean, and Arno and the Wissenschaftliche Arbeitsgemeinschaft was uh, Reinhard Rürup uh, specifically, they were very... Uh, influential in bringing German Jewish history to German universities because a lot of the students that were in a way uh, 
co-trained um, by Rana Duriru, mm -hmm. had no professor <laughs> in their university. I know you don't like this because you, you, you had so many, but I think there were many generations of German students who were then going to Bad Homburg to mm -hmm. those seminars that Reinhard Rüro uh, coordinated, mm -hmm. and that was also in a uh, somehow in a connection with it. I do think yes, that that has um, had a huge impact. We have Jewish museums. In 1985, there was not a single Jewish museum in Germany. So now we have. Berlin, Frankfurt, uh, Fürth, etc. So it's the field is quite big. Um, um, on the other hand, I do think it's also maybe that there is a, a certain peak that has mm -hmm. been reached. And my feeling is it is now slowing down. Um, but, you know, the future will tell us. Yes, I know. Just, uh, in the more recent years, Jewish studies flowered in Germany, Jewish studies in general, and, and, and history uh, became part of Jewish studies, mm -hmm. which is somewhat different to what we tried to do in the, in the 90s, that is uh, to uh, deal with Jewish history as part of general German-European mm -hmm. world history. and. Uh, now there are many, many <coughs> specialists who uh, know all the necessary languages and, and also what you can uh, call the Jewish theology also. And we didn't have that in mm -hmm. the 90s, just a very few who would have been able to do this in that young generation at that time. In the meantime, this <coughs> changed. In a, and there is a certain danger in my eyes that uh, there is a tendency uh, that people uh, deal with Jewish history for, as specialists for specialists. And I think that is not what it should be in a country like Germany and, and, and also in other countries. So maybe the best way is then to follow I fully agree with what Reinhard Röhrup yes. says. I think if you emphasize German Jewish history, then you have a special field. And it gives the, or it has the understanding that, that, that there is a group in, Germ in Germany who have a special history, which is separate from the other history. Um, you would never talk about Protestant German mm -hmm. history or Roman Catholic German history. Mm -hmm. So I would think it should be part and parcel of German history. And that's it, not German-Jewish history. This was a field for a couple of years that was interesting mm -hmm. and it was important to open this field, but now you know, it should integrate into German history. But would you agree that the way out is maybe to follow Arno's idea to reach out? Well, yes. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps it should be history of German-speaking Jews. I mean, Austria is there, and... Uh, mm. Switzerland. Switzerland. <laughs> <laughs> and Vienna, and you mm. name it. Yes, yes. All right, this is only a footnote. So as you can see, there's still many questions left out, and maybe Arno's motto as um, Peter very brilliantly put it, to reach out is probably the way we should follow. And this brings me to a close of the official part of tonight. 
and I would like you to invite you very warmly to a reception next door to which Pauline is treating us all. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you.